Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Shahara Wright. Shahara, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. We're glad to have you. Shahara is a CEO, a business law attorney, a professor, a community leader, a speaker, an author. She does all kinds of things. It's almost easier to list what you don't do. Um, it's a very accomplished <laughs> woman here that's with us today. She has been the owner and lead attorney of the Wright Firm for 15 years. Shahara provides, uh, through her firm, uh, small and mid-sized companies with legal and business strategies, including entity formation, mergers and acquisitions, investor packages and contracts, and lots more. Uh, she has experience also in particular with product development, and that's bringing products from mere concepts to a fully developed and manufactured brand. Uh, Shahara also founded the CEO Effect to work with small business owners who want to position themselves for accelerated growth. We're going to chat about that. She got her business, uh, or her bachelor's rather, from Hampton University and her law degree from Texas Tech School of Law. And she got her license in the state of Texas to practice law back in 1998. She recently published a book. The book is entitled From Entrepreneur to CEO. I have not had a chance to read it yet, uh, but we're going to chat about that as well. And Shahara lives in the Houston, Texas area. So in this episode, we're going to focus on a bit of her entrepreneurial journey, how she got to where she is today, and some general legal guidance on several topics related to small business owners. So once again, Shahara Wright, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, we're glad to have you. So you're in the Houston area, correct? Yes. And uh, you went to Texas Tech. I have a niece who's there currently. She's just got into the nursing program there at Texas Tech. Great school. Yeah, it is. They have a great medical school and nursing program. They sure do. They sure do. And I'm sure a great law school as well. Uh, you have an older child, I think, that's going off to college or did go off to college. Tell me about yeah, that. He He's in college, so he's 19, um, and he's a sophomore in college. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. When I say that, I kind of choke um, every now and again. <laughs> oh, I understand. Where is he at school? He's at UT, at well, Texas, where most people call it Texas. We call it UT here in right. Texas. That's but, right. Yeah. So he's, a, he's fantastic. What is he studying? Uh, chemical engineering. Oh, wow. Smart, right. Smart kid, smart kid. Smart kid, yes. Yeah, it's hard. We just had our only child. Our daughter is a freshman at Indiana University, so we are empty nesters now, my wife and I. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, I still have an eight-year-old home, so I have a big gap between my kids. So I've got a little while to go before. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. Right, well, let, let's get into it. I, I'd like to start with your entrepreneurial journey. You've been an attorney for quite a bit of time now, but I want to go back. What, why did you decide to study law? Uh, well, I wanted to be a lawyer since I was like eight years old. Um, my mom said that I like to argue <laughs> all the time. And, you know, she kind of put my it in my head that I should be a lawyer and it pretty much stuck. I mean, there were other things that I think I thought about doing, but law was pretty much my whole focus, you know, kind of growing up. And I really never con seriously considered doing anything else. So, you know, what I majored in and in undergrad and just knew that I was going to law school and that was pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. That was what you decided to do. And what did you imagine you would do with that degree as far as would you, did you always imagine you'd have your own firm or what were your thoughts back then? Oh no. I, I actually thought I was interested in criminal law. I, oh. I wanted to be a prosecutor. Um, but then I realized I didn't want to do that. I just, it wasn't really as interesting as I thought it was going to be. Um, and I just didn't want to do it. And when I was in law school, I took a couple of transactional classes that talked about business entities and contracts. And um, I enjoyed it um, and I liked it a lot. So I really just wanted to do more of that and pursue more of that. And so I just kind of went that route. Yeah, interesting. So then you, out of school, you went to work for a firm for a period of time, right? Yeah, I worked for two solo practitioners. One did family law and the other one had like a general practice and he kind of did a bunch of different things. But I had a really hard time finding a job. Um, I could not find a job in the areas that I wanted. I wanted to work for a corporation and be in their legal department, but I just could not get hired on. So to me, the only logical choice that was really left was to start my own practice to do what I wanted to do because I didn't enjoy the work that I was doing before with the other attorneys. Interesting. So back then you thought I'd go into corporate law and that would be your career. Is that what you were thinking then? Yes, exactly. That, so, was, that was it. So when you look back at it now, the fact that you couldn't get in, was that, as it turns out, to be a great thing because it forced you to create your own firm? Yes, it is. And, you know, it's been good and bad. I mean, in some instances, sometimes I think, you know, what if I would have gone into a corporation and had this steady life and not be stressed out as a business owner and, you know, got my regular paycheck and been happy and that would be it and, you know, that may be it. But I have friends that are in corporations and they say it's not that simple. And, you know, it's a lot of stress and, you know, a lot of corporate antics and politics. And I've never been really good at that. So I think at the end of the day, my personality just fit me being an entrepreneur, being a business owner. And I think it's the best thing for me. And it's also caused me to grow as a person to think about things differently than I would have, I think, if I'd been in a corporate setting. Yeah, no doubt. So, if you think about right now being your own business owner, being your own boss, what do you enjoy most about that? I enjoy most setting my own schedule. Um, when I started my practice, my oldest son was in, well, he wasn't quite, I guess he wasn't quite in um, school yet. He was probably about four. So he was in pre-K and I could, you know, go to his school when I wanted to. I could be involved with the PTO. I could pick him up or drop him off. I had a lot of freedom to spend time with him. And so that made it a lot easier for me to be a present parent 
And I always appreciate being able to do that. And even still with my youngest son, while my schedule isn't as flexible as it was when I first started my practice, I do still have the flexibility if I want to, to kind of do some things that I wouldn't be able to do if I had a steady nine to five, so to speak. Right. Yeah. No, that's something that I think every entrepreneur I speak to, certainly for myself, is one of the key reasons why we are entrepreneurs. Uh, What do you love the most about what you do now? I really like working with business owners. I, my, my practice really began with working with small business owners, really just focusing on the legal aspects with setting up corporations and doing contracts and things like that. And it's involved to doing more business planning, more strategic planning, being more in depth with clients. And I really enjoy that. I really like the strategy portion and I really like working with business people on their businesses. And I like, you know, the variety that comes with it. It keeps me on my toes. It keeps me challenged. And I enjoy working through whatever is going on with someone else's business and, you know, helping them through that. I I really like it. Yeah, I can understand that. All right, great. Let's move into the, the first topic I'd like to chat about, and that's related to your business, The CEO Effect. And so I want to quote something from your website, and this is a partial quote, but quote, the CEO effect was developed to take entrepreneurs from risk takers, risk takers to strategists who think long term about their businesses. CEOs think about their business as a whole, not just about how to survive in the moment, end quote. So it's a, a very interesting concept, and I agree completely, and it's to this point that as business owners, obviously, we often get bogged down in the minutia and the details um, and in the risks that we have to take, but we don't often stand back and look and take a bigger, broader view as a CEO would and be forward thinking in our business. So just talk to me about that concept, how that came to you, why you've decided to focus in this area. Um, well, it came to me because I was working with another company, a small startup. They were developing a baseball training product. I had worked with them for about three years. And then the owner, the founder kind of decided that he just couldn't handle stress. He didn't want to do it anymore and just pretty much stopped working in the business. And we had worked for about three years trying to develop this product, get it sellable, and it was doing really well. And after that process, I really started to think about what was I doing in that company? What was I thinking about in that company versus what he was thinking about in the company? And I was thinking about long-term growth. I was thinking about, okay, it's going to take us at least five years to get to play from point A to point B. And so in that five years, these are points that we need to hit. And are we hitting those points and are we not hitting those points? And that's where my mindset was, where his mindset was, we're not making money right now. We're not doing this right now. This is not happening right now. And so in his mind, everything was on fire. And so I thought about that perspective and I said, you know, there's a different level of thought process that happens when you are solely thinking about the next moment you can't really see in front of you and you decide that because everything in front of you seems scary you stop and you're not thinking about the long term that goes on to it and that was really what i was thinking about in terms of writing the book and coming from finishing that book really saying okay let's take this further and let's talk about long-term strategies 
and small businesses really needing to focus more on long-term strategy and less on short-term fixes. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind you've hit on something there that's so critical. And I'm, it's amazing. I was chuckling when you said the word uh, fires because it's exactly the analogy I use is we get up sometimes as small business owners every day and we look for what's the fire that I have to put out today. What's the emergency? What's the crisis, right, that I have to go handle? And again, we get bogged down in that and we don't have sometimes the time or the discipline to look back up and have a more strategic view of our business, right? Exactly, exactly. So one of the things you do is what you call a CEO strategy session. And and one of the outcomes, I believe, is this three to five year thinking plan. Can you introduce that concept? Yes. So one of my friends and I were having a conversation about business plans and strategic plans, and we were talking about how big they are, how stressful it can be to really do them really comprehensively and how you can really make those things happen in a smaller scale. And I really thought about that conversation we had and said I wanted to bring it down a little bit in terms of strategic planning and saying it could be very overwhelming when you're trying to do a strategic plan and you're trying to think about all the different aspects that you have and going on and all the different moving parts and it paralyzes you and you don't want to do anything. So I wanted to bring that down into a thinking plan and say, okay, there's some key parts that you do need to think out. Um, And once you think those parts out, then the other parts are not as difficult to move through. So that's really how the thinking part plan kind of came about. It's also in my book. um, And I really just said, you know, this is something that we can do in one day. And you can really think about your mission, your vision. You can think about where you are now, where you're trying to go, do your SWOT analysis, those types of things. And you can do that in a short confined time to help you move forward and then as you figure those things out the other things won't be as difficult to move forward in okay yeah great great uh, way to approach it like you said so it doesn't become this overwhelming thing or this document that i create that then gets gathers uh, dust on the shelf and nobody ever looks at right (laughs) exactly exactly and so it becomes very actionable which is what i really like about this approach so you you highlighted i think a few things but i was hoping you could give me a little bit more color on some of the components of this thinking plan it includes the vision the mission your swot analysis what are two things that you could highlight a little bit deeper that go into this thinking plan so i can get a better idea of what this thing ends up being so what ends up being is generally a three-year plan and you have your to-do list so to speak whereas year one we're doing we're trying to move towards the whole point is that you're trying to move to a certain level so let's just say you're trying to open up a a second store Um, and instead of just saying okay we're going to go open up a second store and we're just going to go lease somewhere and you know we'll find some employees and we'll figure it out as we go we plan it out and so that's really what you're thinking about in this plan So in order to open up a second store, what do you need to open up a second store? What is it going to take? What problems are you having in the first store that you don't want to take with you to the second store? You know, how many more, you know, clients are you going to need? What kind of location are you in that's going to require something different than what the first location is going to be? And so those are the things that it takes you through 
in the thinking plan that helps you think through what you need to get to point B. So it's kind of streamlined in, I'm thinking I want to be at a certain level in a certain amount of years. Where do I want to be? Where am I now? And how am I going to be get there? And what are the steps I need to take place? So you may need to look at trademarks. You may need to look at, you know, the types of leases that you have. You may need to look at contracts with your customers that are going to give you some more um, financial benefits when you open up a second location. So all of those things need to come into play, but you're thinking about them on a long term as opposed to just being reactionary and saying, okay, I want to open up a lo second location. You just go and do it and you don't think about the long-term consequences or benefits of it. Yeah, I love that. Great example. So thanks for sharing that detail. All right, I want to move on to the topic of employee management. And uh, there's a you have several great case studies on the website, which I thought were, were a great way to explain what you do with clients. But there was one in particular that I'm going to summarize here and then chat about. And this was a particular business owner you work with that had been experiencing high turnover, high employee turnover, uh, problems in employee conduct in general. And then you helped them develop a policy and procedures manual that provided information regarding the company's expectations, the code of conduct, et cetera. And then you also helped them implement a training program. And that training program included professional development, performance reviews, those types of components. And that resulted with that client that you helped them do this in less turnover, a very positive employee management culture that developed in the company. So that's a great example of where you've helped somebody through that. Specific questions I have, when we're talking about a policies and procedures manual, like the one that you helped them deploy here, Share with me what are some of those key components that you always recommend are part of that manual. So I think you have to look at what the purpose of a policy and procedure manual or for lack of a better word, an employee manual. Um, and the point of it is, is to kind of give your employees an overall idea or objective of what the company is about, the culture that it is, the expectations that you have of your employees, and what you want them to do and how you want them to act. And if they do not do that, what the consequences are. So you want to be clear about what it is that you're trying to do. So I'm to backtrack, then you have to understand what your company is about and what you want as a company to be able to have a clear and concise policy manual. A lot of times what I see people do is they get them offline, they, you know, have them buy them, and they just purchase these employee manuals, which have all the legal information that you should have, and you can do that. But it doesn't really reflect you as a company. It doesn't reflect anything that you want to instill into your employees. And it's not utilized in a way that gets the employees to buy into the company culture. Because what is thought is, because we're small, we just can do whatever, and I can come in however I want to you don't necessarily want to create that environment in your company. You may want something that's not a little bit more casual, but not as formal, but you need to state what those policies are so that you don't have everything running amok in your, in your office, in your building or whatever that you're in. You want to make sure that everybody's on the same line and that everybody is pumping out the right, the right employee cultural that you're trying to create. So there isn't really one thing that I would say that has to be in there. I mean, there are a lot of legal things that should be in there, but I think the whole point of it is, is to create the company culture 
so that everybody is in line and clear about what their expectations are and what happens if they don't meet the expectations. Yeah, that's such a great point. I think I'm sure what you see and I've seen is that people, like you said, will either take a, a boilerplate approach or a very basic rudimentary employee manual. What we've done, for example, one of our businesses, to your point, is included in there amongst many things is our customer service manifesto, which is our manifesto on who we are culturally as far as how we deliver service to our customers. So to your point, that's part of indoctrinating in that employee from day one what our culture is. And that's what I think you're talking about there, right? Absolutely. Yes. And I think that that goes to your point, which is, you know, sometimes these boilerplate um, type of manuals don't have that in there. And so you have to think, okay, are these the things that I want my employee to know and understand? So then you have to insert that and you have to be clear um, about what your expectations. And it doesn't just end with having the book. It also means that you have to train them and you have to, you know, because you hand people a book and you have them sign. And of course, nobody's going to read it, right? They, they sign and they say they read the manual and they, of course they haven't read it. You maybe have one person out of 50 that's actually ever read, you know, their employee manual. So then that means you have to train train and you have to have training sessions and you have to go through the book and you have to create a culture that says, you know, I respect not only you as an employee and I want you to respect me as a business owner and I want you to respect our customers and you have to train them how to do that. So they go hand in hand with not only just handing them a manual, but also training them on what the expectations are in the manual as well. Yeah, great point. And then you, you touched on it, but do you recommend that there's an acknowledgement page that the employee signs related to the manual? Is that a recommendation? Oh, absolutely. I think you should always have something, um, you should have that there for them to sign to say that they received it, especially if you have any drug testing or background testing, um, if you have any no weapons policies, you know, all of those policies, it should have them sign. But I wouldn't say that you just hand it to them and have them sign it. I think that you have to go through class and it doesn't have to necessarily be long to just explain what's in there and what they're signing so that they understand what it is they're signing so that if there's any violation or any problems you can go back to say hey you signed this you said that you understood it we had a class that said you know that I went through and explained everything to you and you signed it that means that you understood in the violation these are how it's going to be handled and it could result in immediate termination. Maybe sometimes it comes in warnings, but those types of things help cut down on the workforce commission unemployment claims that come about because somebody has been terminated. Yeah, great points, great takeaways there. And for example, in our environment, we don't have enough volume to do a class per se. We, we have maybe 15 employees on staff. So what we do is when somebody comes on as part of the onboarding process is their manager walks them through the employee and procedures manual, and then we ask them to sign the acknowledgement. So we kind of do it that way. And then there's a training program, of course, and, and at that point we go through it as well, but that's, that's how we do it in our very small environment. And I think that's sufficient, and I think that works fine for small um, businesses, and I think that that's what should be done. At least somebody's there, if it's not a full-blown class, at least somebody's there to work through, walk them through it to help to make sure that they understand what it is they're signing at least in a general sense, not in a legal sense, but in a general sense that you understand what it is you're signing and that there's something there 
support wise to help an employee adjust and understand what is expected of them. Yeah. And I, and I think also to your earlier point, it sets the tone on culture that this isn't just a boilerplate standard. We put this back on the shelf after you sign it. This really actually has in it our beliefs, our policies, our procedures, and therefore at the basis of our culture. And it's not just something that we give lip service to. We actually adhere and believe these things. Yes, exactly. And I think when you show employees that this is an expectation and you set those expectations early, then their attitude and how they work um, come out in a much better way than it would be if you gave them nothing. Yeah. So staying with this example of the business owner you helped that had the issue of high turnover and employee conduct issues, I want to talk about talk a bit more about the training program. What were some of the key things you incorporated in that training program to help with those two problems, the high turnover and the employee conduct? Well, the program was kind of like what you described, which was we had a particular manager. Most cases, it was the business owner um, to walk the new employee through the manual and then walk the new employee through what was expected at the business. So not only how everybody's worked together, because it was a small business as well. I think they maybe had 10 employees and, you know, making sure that everybody understood how they work together. If somebody needed to cover a class, it's a daycare. So if somebody needed to cover a class, what needed to happen? Um, if you needed to walk out of your class, what needed to happen? How to do it? Where everything was? That's really kind of what it was, a one-day walkthrough that we created so that at the end of that day, that employee understood what he or she was supposed to do and how they were supposed to react. And then another thing that we did, because sometimes, you know, you're dealing with kids and you're dealing with parents and sometimes temperatures run high through different activities and things like that. So then how to really counsel employees through problems. If there's a problem with a child, what to do, when to call the parent, how to have a parent-teacher conference. If there's a problem with the teacher and the parent thinks that something happened with the teacher that was inappropriate, how to have that meeting and deal with it. Um, those types of things were very important for everybody to understand that we're all on one page. And then when we have a way that it's handled, you know that if you yell at a child and there's going to be some punishment for it, then you understand what that's going to be. And you may have one time where we have to talk to you about it, but if you do it again, then that might recall termination. So now you have some understanding of what expectations you have in terms of your behavior that makes it better for not only the company itself, but for the employee to understand there are things that I cannot do. And if I do that, it's going to result in termination. And part two of that is when we are able to show the unemployment commission, these are the things that we set out. We trained our employees to do this. This is a violation and it's a safety regulation. Then when we terminate, we don't have to pay this unemployment because of the type of termination that it was. And then that makes a difference because now we're showing people will just say, well, I got fired for no reason. No, you violated a company policy. It had, you had to go and this is, and you knew it. And this is what we did in order to deal with it. And it makes a difference on both sides of that. 
Yeah. Great takeaways there, Shahara. I want to break down a couple of things. Um, first of all, just for a little bit of context, you were talking about teacher-student, and that's because what I left out before was that this example, this business was a daycare facility, I believe, right? Yes, okay. yes, yes. So just, just for our listeners, if, if that lost you a little bit. Um, but a few things. First of all, it seems to me like what you have found and I have found is, and this is something we've talked about in other, in other episodes, is that as small business owners, we tend to celebrate or think the job is done at hiring an employee when in fact it's just begun. And it, I'm sure you've found it interesting that most small business owners just don't have a process beyond the hire. And that's in part what you did here is instilled a process that is this simple training process. And then what it also does that I found very interesting, and I really it's really surprised me when I first observed it, is that employees really like that confidence and understanding what the expectations are, what the rules are. It's just like it's a human nature thing, isn't it? That we we like we feel more comfortable when we know what the rules are, right? Absolutely. And I think there's more respect. If you have a company where there's no rules, where there's no regulations, where companies, where employees can do whatever they want to do, then you stop seeing the respect. And then you think, well, these people, I'm hiring people, but they're not doing their jobs. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, or I'm hiring the wrong people, or I can't get these great employees. I don't care how great that person may be without rules. They're never is going to be as good as they could possibly could be. So you have to create that level of expectation to give people something to rise to and adhere to. We all want to be challenged. Nobody wants to just be able to do whatever they want to do with no rules and regulations. You want to have that. And sometimes people want to have this lax business, which I think is fine if that's what you have. But, you know, it has to be lax maybe in dress, not necessarily in behavior. Um, And you can have fun days and enjoy days. But just like, you know, the parenting, you know, you can't just have be best friends with your kids all the time. You do have to discipline them from time to time. And that's the same thing with employees. You do have to create structure and rules. They don't always have to be so hardline like a major corporation. But you do have to have something because I think that's how you get the best out of your employees. You get the best out of your employees when you have expectations that you want to see them be their best and it encourages them to be their best. Well, well said. I completely agree. All right. I'd like to take a shift now to just a more broader question. And I know it's going to be a broad question, but that is just in general, as you work with small business owners, what do you see as some of the common legal mistakes that a lot of small business owners make? I think the most common is not documenting things. Um, A lot of times people have conversations and they think because they've had this conversation that everybody's on the same page. And that is rarely the case. Once you have a conversation, you think, okay, we've agreed. But somebody goes and thinks one thing. Somebody else thinks another. Somebody thought they said something that they didn't say. And by the time you come back, what you thought you agreed to wasn't actually what you agreed to. So documenting things is really important. And, and you, so do that, you mean, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Do you mean just in general, not just legally, like coming, boiling things down to an agreement, but just in general, having notes of a meeting or a conversation? Is that what you're talking about as well? I think I'm talking about both. I mean, a contract is important um, to have, especially in a transactional type setting. Mm-hmm. That's important. But also then you have the notes 
or whatever that you have to say, okay, we had a meeting and we agreed that we're going to go do such and such, then you may have notes from that. But just because you have the notes doesn't mean that the other person has those same notes or took that same thing away. So I think it's important to document what you guys have agreed upon. And that would be true not only just into a contract situation, but sometimes between you know, managers sometimes between employees and say, this is what my expectations are. This is what, you know, I believe we agreed to. Are you okay with this? Is yes or no. Instead of assuming that somebody understood what you said or assuming that they knew what you meant because words have different meanings and people come from different backgrounds and cultures and what you say in one way may be received in a completely different way. And so not documenting that clearly can be a problem. And then of course people forget. And so they may forget some portion of it. And so if you don't have it documented, it could be a problem. And another thing I think in that documentation is because we have so many different ways to communicate that people text, people email, they may Facebook message, that you have one clear place where communications, official communications should take place, mm. that you're not having it all over the place. Because if something happens, then you have to go back and look at your email, go back, look at your Facebook message, go look back and look at your text messages and try to figure out where somebody may have communicated with you and you can't figure it out. So there should be one official manner of communication for documentation purposes. Mm, great, great takeaways here, Sahara. So let me ask you a couple of follow-up questions. So I think what you're talking about here, as you, as you clarified, is this is anything from whether it needs to be boiled down to a legal agreement, or it could be a write-up or review that you do for an employee or feedback, or like you said, uh, noting notes from a conversation or a meeting. Uh, perhaps it might entail related to email as an example. I might summarize back to you after our meeting. Here's what I understood. Is this is this what you understood? And, and it's such a great point because in my observation, as I'm sure it has been in yours, a lot of issues, problems, disagreements in small businesses originate from a misunderstanding. I thought mm -hmm. one thing you thought, I thought you meant this, but you meant that, and then that ends up escalating and then it gets ugly, right? Uh, what I didn't quite follow though is this concept of the official place. So can you give me an example of that? So I've had text conversations, we had a meeting, we exchanged emails. How do I then, are you saying, I bring that down and boil it down to an official place? Give me an example if you would. So I'll, I'll give you a good example for what I do with some of my clients. I have a couple of clients that have my cell phone number. Not everybody does, but a few of my <laughs> clients that do. Um, and they text me all the time um, about, you know, hey, Shahara, can you do this? Hey, Shahara, I need this. Hey, Shahara, can I do this? Blah, blah, blah. And so I'll say, okay. And then what I do is I will send them an email from my work email and said, based on your text, this is what you said. Mm -hmm. And so that way, when I have to go back and if there's any problem, I can go back to my email and look up, you know, type their name in, look up all my emails and find out what our conversation was. Because when I send them a document, they ask me to draft a contract and I'm like, okay, I'll draft a contract. Then I have to go back and send them an email and say, you wanted me to draft a contract on such and such. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And then let me send you a contract, those kinds of things through the email, as opposed to doing it through the text message, because, you know, I lose my phone. If I my phone breaks or something happens, I don't really have a good backup system for my emails. It's too much 
stress for me. I mean, not my emails, but for my text message. It's too much stress trying to keep up with all of that stuff. So if you change phones and all of that kind of stuff, you may lose your text message. But I do have a good system for my emails. I do keep my emails. I do save those emails. Even when I close out a, con a client, I print out the emails um, to save them on my hard drive um, to, you know, Adobe and save them on my hard drive. So I do that very well. So that's the way I think is my official communication, even though my client may be texting me something, I communicate back with them through email to confirm what we talked about in the text. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Great. Thanks for sharing that. All right. I want to take a more personal shift now and chat about from your perspective, what do you think have been some of the keys to your success in life and in business? Uh, if you look back now, what do you think some of those things that stand out that has led you to be successful? You know, I think that I have taken a lot of pride in my per having my personal life and not allowing my business life to take over my personal life. When I first came out of law school, I went to, uh, it was kind of a young lawyer's kind of class, and there was a lot of older lawyers there talking about their lives and their experience in the legal field. So there was a lawyer there, um, an older lawyer, who was talking about his experience, and he was saying one of his biggest regrets for, you know, during his career was not spending quality time with his son that, you know, and his kids actually in general, but one of his sons was really still upset with him about missing out on certain things in his life that his dad wasn't a part of. And that really touched me because at the time I had my young son who was two years old and I did not want to be that absentee parent. And so that stuck with me throughout not only my career, but through his life, through he went to college. And then of course with my younger son that I definitely wanted to be a present parent. So I made choices that for me, in some ways may be detrimental in terms of business where you may not be able to get certain business because you do things the way you're doing. But for me, it was successful because I, I feel like I was there for my kid and I, he can't really point to anything to say you weren't there for me in this or that, you know, that's not his perspective that I've always been there as a mom um, to be present in his life. And so that was something that was really important to me. And because of that, that's how I shaped my business. That was priority number one and everything kind of went around that. So I may have not made as much money as I could have made, but I feel successful in that I was able to balance what I needed to do for my child and what I needed to do for my business. And that to me was success. Right. And that, so that makes perfect sense. And does, do you think it also then resulted from a business success in that when you are present in your business, you're in a good emotional place? You know what I'm getting at? Do you think it helped then in that what you do when you do work, you come to it with that with the lack of that guilt or baggage that I should be somewhere else with one of my children. Yes, absolutely. I, I think it made me better and it, and I, and it makes me clear. And then it also gave my clients parameters because they mm. understood, you know, what I had going on. And so they respect that as, as much as well. So I always feel like, you know, yeah, I was better because I was very clear headed and I felt like I have a time period in which I need to be completely focused. So while my kids are in school, 
I need to be completely focused, you know, during this time, making sure I'm doing everything, returning phone calls, emails, and being on point. And after a certain point, I may not be able to do that. So it kept me on task. It kept my clients on task. They know when to call me and when they're going to get the most out of me, those kinds of things. So it made it a lot better in terms of how I worked. And I think I was much better because of that. Yeah, no doubt. So uh, I also wanted to ask you about kind of how you manage that balance. And you've touched on a couple of things. You you set certain parameters around your work components that this is when I'm available. This is not, this is when I'm not. Your clients know that, that you're doing both things. They know that when they have you, they've got the best of you, but you have certain time frames and parameters. Uh, you also, um, that's, that's a time management technique. So I'm just trying to get a little bit more at how you actually execute on this. Do you block out time on your schedule for personal as well as work? How, how do you make sure that all happens? I, you know, the short answer is I don't know <laughs> because I'm not sure that I'm really that great of a time management person. Interesting. I don't, I don't really feel like I am. I always feel like I'm over all over the place, but I do have in my mind that this is work and this is personal. So for me, it's really just kind of that simple. So just in terms of time, I will probably say, okay, I'm going to track a lot of things that I need to do for the week. So I, I track in terms of weeks. So okay. I'll write down everything that I need to do for the week and say, okay, I need to get this done and hopefully go through it. And hopefully by the end of the week, I've accomplished everything. Right. Some days go the way I want them to. Some days I don't, they don't. So as long as I get it done by the end of the week, I'm okay. And if I feel like, okay, I didn't get done what I needed to get done. If I have to take up some other time because I have some free time elsewhere, then I will do that. But I try to just make sure I'm tracking in terms of getting done project by base as opposed to time base. Yeah. And that's the reality of most of us, right? And especially like yourself, a mom who has two kids, you try to do the best you can. You have some plan, but you don't beat yourself up too bad if at the end of the week it wasn't a great week, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And, and it sounds like what you do mostly on a weekly basis is you kind of look at things priority-wise. Oh, I've got this event with my kid on Wednesday, and so that takes priority, and so that means I'm going to have to get in early. So it sounds like you look at it more that way on a weekly basis. Yes. And like, for example, this week, um, I probably have not accomplished much of anything um, work-wise um, because I've been really busy with kid stuff. So I dealing with PTO, um, the kid, my son was the youngest was out of school. He got out of school early on Tuesday. He was out of school all day on Wednesday. I had a speaking engagement. So I really, in terms of projects, I hadn't done much, but I knew that wasn't going to happen. So I really kind of planned that I wasn't going to get as much work done this week. And so next week, I'm shutting everything else down because I know I have to make up for the week that I really wasn't doing as much. And I knew that was going to happen. So that's kind of how I planned it out, saying, okay, I know this week is going to be really busy, and I'm not going to be able to focus completely on the office. Um, so I'm going to make sure I take care of certain things. And then next week I'm going to shut everything else down and then I'm going to be really focused on the office. Yeah. And of course you've, you've got a team of sorts in the office to help you with some of the administrative components of all of this, right? 
Yes, I have a, so a couple of assistants. I do use a virtual assistant, and I bring in people from time to time to help with getting some of the administration stuff off. But just working on terms of doing the contracts that I need to do, mm-hmm. consulting with clients, um, those types of things, emails, conversations that I have to do. Right. Um, sometimes, you know, you got to just shut everything down and focus on getting it done. Yeah, no, that's great. Thanks for sharing those details with us. All right, I have not had a chance to read the book. Again, it's called From Entrepreneur to CEO. Would you just give us a quick introduction and who it's for? Yes, it's for small business owners. And it's okay for startups, but I think if you are already in a business and you've had a business, I think it's probably going to be best. And it really just talks about four main strategies that happen with small business owners that you should be focused on. Management, legal, financial, and marketing. Those are the four main strategies that any business owner will need to run a successful business. And it breaks it down to say within these strategies, these are some places where you should be focusing and paying attention. And it gives you examples of what it looks like when you implement those strategies and what it looks like when you don't implement those strategies. And that's really what From Entrepreneur to CEO is about, kind of giving you a way to start implementing strategy into your business. Great. Thanks for giving us that synopsis. So in addition to your book, is there another book that you've read on business that uh, you would recommend to our listeners? I have just purchased, I'm in a business book club and I just got Jab, Jab, Right Hook. I have not started reading it, but I've heard a lot of great things about it. A couple of people have recommended to me. And so I am looking forward to reading that Jab, Jab, jab it's three jabs jab 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 right hook and i'm looking forward to um understanding um dealing with social media and things like that in your world telling your story okay so that one's next on your to read list then yeah yeah i have heard of it as well i have not read it either so i'll have a link to that one as well as to your book in the show notes page for this episode and you can find that at the howofbusiness.com all right shahara we'll start to wrap it up uh, last couple of questions and the first one is last parting piece of advice or thought for our audience? You know, my advice that I always give is start where you are. Don't be overwhelmed about where you are not, but understand where you are and where you're trying to go. And if you start making steps to get to where you want to be, you will get there eventually. Don't pressure yourself to say that you have to be there at any given particular time. The point is is that you're making moves to get to where you want to be so that you don't become overwhelmed by business in general. Mm, I love that. Is that a strategy that uh, you think you've always applied, like uh, to get through law school, for example? Yes, I have. I try to. Sometimes I forget and sometimes I forget frustrated and say I should be doing this or I should have this here or so-and-so's business is doing this and I should be doing that. But then I have to take a a deep breath and take a step back and think, you know, this was my plan. These are the things that I'm trying to do. And I'm here now. Let me start from where I am and start making a step to where I want to be. And yeah, I've always applied that throughout my life. And I try to continue to do that. And I do forget from from time to time. Sometimes I get frustrated as well. But I think once I go back to it, I realize, okay, let me go back. Let me plan. Let me figure out where I am and how I need to get to what I need to where I want to be. And I think that that's what we should do as small business owners because it can get overwhelming. And then you just can't think straight because you're so overwhelmed by everything that's happening. Yeah, great perspective. 
right. Where would you like our listeners to go to find out more about you and your business? So you can go to my website, which is www.theceoeffect.net. That's T-H-E-C-E-O-E-F-F-E-C-T.net. You can also find me on Facebook at CEO Effect, CEO E-F-F-E-C-T, and also on Twitter at The CEO Effect, which is T-H-E-C-E-O-E-F-F-E-C-T. Great. And we'll have links to all of those. If you didn't catch that, all of that will be on the show notes page at thehowabusiness.com. Shahara, this has been uh, insightful. I've learned a lot. Thanks for sharing all your knowledge and some specific examples and being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure and I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks. Folks, this is Henry Lopez. You've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. And we look forward to having you on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by LevanteBusinessGroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.